0: To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoy this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. Is Yeshua really a human just like us? Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. The Master Yeshua is God in the flesh. He is the Son of God. He is one with the Father. He is Adonai. And this is amazing and glorious, not just because it's true, but because as much as he is God, to whatever extent that unfathomable reality means, he is equally as much a man, a normal flesh and blood human being just like you and me. This is the mystery that astounds us and only the beginning of the impossible that the Messiah Yeshua makes possible. But why would God need to enter humanity in this way? Can Yeshua truly be just a man if he is also truly God? And does Yeshua's equal humanness also hold equal significance for our faith? In the previous episode, I explained from the scriptures in what way Yeshua is God, how he is the word of God who became flesh, having emptied himself and set aside his deity, yet nevertheless still remains indwelt by all the fullness of that same deity. A paradox for sure, but what the scriptures plainly teach nonetheless. In this episode, we'll look at Yeshua's humanity to establish that the scriptures say that he is indeed fully human, not superhuman, and to explore why Yeshua's being a man is not only crucial for our salvation, but for our daily walk as disciples of Messiah. Now, when we talk about Yeshua's simultaneous dual nature as fully God and fully man, we tend to elevate the divine at the expense of the physical. But when we lift Yeshua so high that we can no longer relate to him as a man, we mute one of the main purposes in his becoming human in the first place. Though Yeshua clearly embraced his identity as the Son of God and occasionally referenced his own divine origins, he most often referred to himself as the Son of Man. This apparently is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, and Yeshua seems to use this title as an acknowledgement of his role and calling as Messiah. In Daniel chapter seven, verses thirteen through fourteen, it says, "I was seeing in the visions of the night, and look, with the clouds of the heavens, one was coming as a son of man, and he had come to the ancient of days, and they had brought him near before him, and to him had been given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages served him. His dominion is a dominion forever that will not pass away." and his kingdom, that which will not be destroyed. In fact, Yeshua references this very passage as well as Psalm 110 in his answer to the high priest, according to Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 62, when he asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Yeshua said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds Of the heaven. Yeshua also uses the title Son of Man in earthly, mortal contexts. For example, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, he says that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head to lie down and rest. And in chapter 9, verse 6, that the Son of Man has power upon the earth to forgive sins. In Luke 7 34, he refers to the Son of Man as eating and drinking. And in Mark chapter 9, verses 9 through 12, Yeshua speaks of how the Son of Man would suffer and die. So while the title Son of Man isn't a direct affirmation of his humanity, it still reinforces his interaction and association with us. But what speaks most obviously to Yeshua's humanity is the fact that the scriptures tell us that he was literally born. This is actually the very first thing that we learn about Yeshua in both the accounts of his life from Matthew and Luke. In fact, the book of Matthew opens with a scroll of the birth of Yeshua the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Then Matthew traces Yeshua's human lineage going as far back as Abraham. Luke does this also in chapter 3, stating in verse 23 that Yeshua is the son of Joseph, Joseph, Miriam's husband. Then tracing it all the way back to the beginning, saying in verse 38 that Yeshua is the son of Adam, the son of God. But while we have these two birth records, which unequivocally establish human lineage, especially Yeshua's literally being the son of David, which is a messianic term, and thereby qualifying him to sit on David's eternal throne as king of Israel, the two genealogies have also created some issues. First, both of them speak of Yeshua as being the son of Yosef. And yet, according to both Matthew and Luke, Miriam became pregnant without first having had relations with her husband. She and Joseph were only pledged to be married at the time. And as the scriptures say, she conceived from the Holy Spirit. So you probably see the dilemma with this. If Yeshua only has human lineage through Miriam, which we assume he would have by virtue of being born to her, then that would imply he's some kind of half-man, half-God creature, like something out of Greek mythology. But if Yeshua legitimately has full human lineage, specifically from Yosef, then how could he have been conceived without an earthly father? Now, we know from the scriptures that both of these things are true, that Yeshua was both conceived from the Holy Spirit and he has Yosef's lineage. These are indisputable facts of scripture. But the Bible never tells us how we get from Yeshua's miraculous conception to his sharing Yosef's ancestry. It just says that it's so. But unless the biblical authors are lying to us, which they're not, and despite the manner in which Miriam became pregnant, there's nothing to suggest that Yeshua isn't legitimately in Yosef's line. And we have the birth records to prove it. This means that Yeshua is literally, genetically descended, not only from Yosef, but all the way back to Adam. Just like us. Look at it this way. Yeshua is a man, but not just a man. Yeshua is God, but not just God. And Yeshua was conceived from the Holy Spirit, but not just conceived from the Holy Spirit. He also somehow, some way, also became a fully flesh and blood human being, specifically a descendant of both Miriam and Yosef. The other issue that these genealogies present is that their list of names are different. They both include the same important touchstones of Joseph, David, and Abraham, but the names between David and Joseph aren't the same. Now, there are various explanations as to why this is, and I don't have time to go into them, but the predominant view is that Luke's genealogy is actually that of Miriam and not of Yosef, which would be unusual to say the least. While the scriptures may hint that this is the case, there's really no way to know for sure. So what does this do to the reliability of the two genealogies? Well, according to Dr. Michael Brown, in Volume 4 of his book, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, he writes, There do appear to be some contradictions in these genealogies, just as there appear to be contradictions in some of the genealogies of the Hebrew Scriptures. But there are very reasonable answers to resolve the conflict. Common sense would also tell you that the followers of Jesus who were totally dedicated to demonstrating to both Jews and Gentiles that he was truly the Messiah and Savior, would not preserve and pass on two impossibly contradictory genealogies. So while I would have personally preferred that these genealogies matched, it doesn't strain my faith in the reliability of Scripture that they don't. On the contrary, the fact that they're different proves that the biblical authors themselves, and later copyists, weren't in cahoots so as to eliminate difficult scriptural issues like this one. But the bottom line is that the differences in these genealogies don't change the fact that both Matthew and Luke considered Yeshua to be an actual human being with traceable human lineage and by virtue of that lineage, a legitimate right to the throne of David. It's alleged discrepancies like these and other scriptural ambiguities that have historically fueled speculation about the nature of Yeshua's humanity. In Luke's genealogy, for instance, when speaking of Yeshua being the son of Yosef, Luke inserted in chapter 3, verse 23, the really inconvenient phrase, as was supposed. In other words, it was supposed or assumed within the community that Yosef was Yeshua's father, which he was and wasn't. While the presence of this phrase could partially be explained as Luke's way of indicating that he was indeed giving Miriam's genealogy, it has the unfortunate and potential byproduct of making Scripture's testimony about Yeshua's humanity less clear. Complicating the matter are seemingly ambiguous passages such as Philippians 2, which we covered at length in the previous episode. For example, in verses 7 and 8, Paul says that Yeshua had been made in the likeness of men and in appearance having been found as a man. Similarly, in Romans eight three, Paul says that Yeshua was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. So for someone not wanting Yeshua to actually be a normal person just like us, one could read these passages in such a way as to suggest that he only appeared to be human or that he was like a human, meaning similar but not actually fully human. Such a view would then necessitate the idea that Yeshua's perceived humanity is somehow different from ours, that he's not exactly like us, having been constructed of some substance other than the same corporeal flesh material that we're made of. It's sort of a strange thing to think about. If Yeshua was only made in the likeness of sinful flesh, in the sense that his physical being was similar but not the same, then that could explain how he was able to remain completely without sin and helps us to maintain that otherworldly distance from him. But if Yeshua was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, in the sense that his physical being was exactly like ours, then we're suddenly faced with the prospect that the sinlessness Yeshua maintained throughout his life is something that we are now responsible to seek out for ourselves in him. But was the Master Yeshua merely posing as a human being? Was he deliberately misrepresenting himself as a man in order to obscure his true superhuman nature? If that's the case, then we have a big problem. Because not only would that make him the greatest deceiver of all, but it would directly contradict 1 John 4, verse 2, which says, talking about the spirits of true and false prophets, In this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that professes Yeshua the Messiah having come in the flesh, is of God. So according to Yochanan, professing that Yeshua came in the flesh, meaning that he was a human being, says that our spirit is of God, which Yochanan juxtaposes in the next verse with being of the anti-Messiah. To profess Yeshua's humanity, then, is to declare our allegiance to God. To deny Yeshua's humanity is to show that our spirit is not of him. But despite these very few places that can read somewhat ambiguously, they come completely into focus when we consider the many passages of Scripture where Yeshua is very plainly referred to as a man. One of the best examples of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul is comparing Yeshua with Adam, the very first man, and how, by committing the world's first sin, Adam brought death into the world. In verses 20 through 22, it says, But now Messiah has risen out of the dead, the first fruit of those sleeping. For since death came through a man, Adam, also through a man, Yeshua, came the rising again of the dead. For even as in Adam all die, so also in the Messiah all will be made alive. The comparison between Adam and Yeshua and the affirmation of Yeshua's humanity couldn't be clearer. Paul says that just as death came through a man, so also resurrection life comes through a man. Just as in the man Adam all die, so will all be made alive in the man Messiah. This is really the main point of Yeshua's humanity then, isn't it? As a man, Yeshua is in a sense undoing or reversing what Adam, the first man, brought upon the world. In Romans chapter 5 verses 14 through 15, Paul says that Adam is a pattern of him who is coming, that is, Yeshua, and the free gift in unmerited favor of the one man, Yeshua the Messiah, abounded to the many. In other words, God would use the pattern of humanity established in the first man, Adam, to also be the remedy to cure the world, the free gift of the one man, Yeshua the Messiah. And Paul further makes this evident in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5-6, through 6, when he says, For God is one, one also is the mediator of God and of men, the man, Messiah Yeshua, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Though the resurrection from and the defeat of death would be accomplished supernaturally, God would nevertheless use a human being in the pattern of all human beings to serve as the template for humanity's salvation. The man, the Messiah Yeshua, Would make this once and for all payment on our behalf, through his rising again, physical suffering, and sacrificial death, which could only be actual and meaningful if it were endured by a mere mortal man. In every physical respect, then, the man, Messiah Yeshua, was an ordinary human being just like us, not just to the point of being able to die, but even to the point that he could be tempted. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14-18, through 18, this astounding reality is made perfectly clear. Seeing then that the children have shared in blood and flesh, he himself, Yeshua, likewise shared of the same, so that through death he might destroy him who is having the power of death, that is, the accuser, and might deliver those who were enslaved to slavery. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made like the brothers in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful Kohen Gadol, high priest, in the things with God, to make appeasement for the sins of the people. For in that which he suffered, himself being tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. If you are looking for a more unmistakable declaration of Yeshua's humanity, Look no further. The writer says that just as you and I share in blood and flesh, so does Yeshua likewise share of the same. The Master Yeshua is made of the exact same stuff that we are. What makes you and me the same makes Yeshua the same as us. He also goes on to say that Yeshua was made like the brothers in all things, He is like us in every way and that it was necessary for him to be made this way. Why? So that he could be a merciful and faithful mediator between us and God, to make appeasement for our sins. The priests were qualified to stand between the people of Israel and God to make atonement for the people's sins, because they were genuine representatives of the people. While they were set apart from the rest of Israel with additional requirements placed upon them to make them clean and worthy to stand before a holy God, since they were human beings, just like everyone else, they could stand in our place and ask for forgiveness. This is why Yeshua also had to be like us in all things. He had to be a legitimate mediator who could rightfully stand as a true representative, not just of the people of Israel, but of all humanity. But not only did he need to be like us physically and materially, but like us in experience. He needed to know and feel and witness firsthand what it means to be a human being. And the writer expresses this idea in chapter 4, verse 15. For we have a Kohen Gadol, high priest, not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one Tempted in all things likewise as we are, yet remaining apart from sin. And this idea really trips people up because we have a hard time distinguishing between temptation and sin. Yeshua needed to be fully human so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses. And the writer explains exactly what he means by this. Yeshua needed to be able to be tempted in all things likewise as we are. He needed to be able to sympathize with that weakness of humanity, the ability to be tempted to sin. It would have been a farce to have a representative who only appears to be human and seems to be like us, but cannot and has not experienced life in the same way as we have, and, more to the point, couldn't face temptation in the same way that we do. Just as the first man led humanity into sin— Yeshua would be the first man, the only man, to lead humanity out of it. In order to save us from our sins and be able to help us when we're being tempted, Yeshua needed to be able to legitimately and actually remain apart from sin of his own will. And he couldn't truly do that if the temptation wasn't real. But how could the temptation have been real if Yeshua is God? And James 1.13 says that God cannot be tempted by evil. It's because Yeshua wasn't sinless by virtue of his deity. He couldn't be because God can't be tempted. But instead, in his renewed pattern for humanity, he was able to resist temptation. He showed us that through him, we are capable of following in his footsteps and not falling into sin. He showed us that sinlessness can be done. Just think about it. The scriptures say that Yeshua was tempted in all things, likewise as we are. That means that whatever you and I have been tempted in, Yeshua was also tempted in it, in everything, in all things. According to the scriptures, there is nothing that Yeshua has not been tempted in. And yet, he remained apart from sin. This is why Yeshua needed to be a human being, to be able to stand before God as our representative, having experienced what we experience, yet having remained holy and set apart from sin. And this not only secures our salvation, but his example gives us hope. Because not only has that sinless way now been opened to us through Yeshua, he's also shown us the way to remain apart from sin and to say no to temptation. And as if that weren't enough, the scripture also says that he shared of the same flesh and blood so that through his own real actual death, he could destroy the one who has the power of death, the accuser, and to deliver us from the slavery of sin. This is why Yeshua was sent by God, as it says again in Romans 8.3. God, having sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for a sin offering, condemned the sin in the flesh of men. So not only did Yeshua need to be a man in order to qualify to serve as our high priest forever, he also needed to be a man in the likeness of sinful flesh in order to qualify as an appropriate sin offering that would condemn the sin in the flesh of all men, because only an innocent, sinless life can pay for sin. The man Yeshua the Messiah, who, because he was without sin, required no sacrifice of his own, became an acceptable offering for sin on our behalf, making atonement for us once and for all. The Testimony of Scripture concerning Yeshua's full, authentic humanity is consistent and clear. He is the Son of God, but equally the Son of Man. He was conceived from the Holy Spirit, but was literally born, having come from a woman and possessing traceable human lineage to his ancestors David, Abraham, and Adam. Like us all, it was after Adam that Yeshua was patterned, sharing in our same blood and flesh, being made like us, In all things. Both physically and in life experience, the Master was an ordinary human being, able to sympathize with our weaknesses and to be tempted in all things just as we are. Yet he remained apart from sin. It was in this true humanity that God sent Yeshua to reverse what the first man had brought upon the world. Through his literal rising again, his real physical suffering and his actual sacrificial death, the man Yeshua the Messiah freely gave himself to pay the life ransom for us all. In his humanity, he qualified to serve as our high priest forever, standing before God on our behalf to eternally make atonement for us. And as an appropriate and guiltless sacrifice, he delivered us from our fleshly bondage, setting the whole world free From slavery to sin for everyone who believes. But the good news is, it didn't end there. Yeshua wasn't just taking away our sin, he was defeating death, something that an animal sacrifice could never do. And he was doing it for all of us with one sacrifice forever, something that someone who wasn't both fully man and fully God could never accomplish. And this is why Yeshua's dual nature is so important. Not only as a fundamental of our faith, but because it's a salvation issue. If we don't accept this is true, then we're rejecting the Yeshua of the Bible and therefore following a different Messiah. If Yeshua weren't an actual man, then he couldn't truly be our representative. To genuinely sympathize with our weakness and share in our humanity, representing us before God and being sacrificed in our place. But if he wasn't also an equally God, then he could never pay the price to redeem everyone's lives from death. No mere man could ever do that, only God. As it says in Psalm chapter 49, verses 8 through 16, no man can redeem absolutely a brother. He cannot give to God his life price. And costly is the ransom of their soul. It has ended it forever, that he should live on and on for all time and will not see the pit. But God will redeem my soul from the hand of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. The word of God chose to become flesh, to reconcile us to our creator by paying the price for our lives. Only the humanity in Yeshua could be our suitable sacrifice. Only the deity in him could afford the ransom for our souls. What God has done in the person of Yeshua, the divine dynamics that make up his eternal duality, defies language and thought, and is truly beyond our ability to comprehend. His two natures are distinct yet inseparable and indistinguishable. He isn't half God and half man, or a conjoined superhuman God-man, but both and simultaneously fully human and fully God. One nature neither conflicts with nor intermingles with the other, yet they both permeate and fill the single being that is the Messiah. Yet no matter how much we attempt to explain or whatever sense we think we can make of it, The full extent of Yeshua's total essence is ultimately unfathomable and inexplicable. But that doesn't mean that we can't find incredible hope and encouragement in the perfection of the Master's humanity. Because the goal of Messiah's example for us isn't unattainable, the way of purity and holiness through him is within our reach. Peter teaches us that Messiah also suffered for us, leaving himself to us as an example so that we may follow in his steps. And Yeshua says that we can do acts even greater than he. We're not being asked to strive daily in vain to imitate an incorruptible, unmatchable deity. Instead, in the man, Yeshua the Messiah, we have the one whose pattern we're not only expected, but able to to emulate. The hope we have in Yeshua is not just that he's fully God in the flesh, nor that he is in fact the unique one and only of God. You should also find hope in his ordinary humanity, because Yeshua's example isn't impossible to follow. You can be just like him, because in his humanity, he has been just like you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Work Ministries and MJMI with your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, and ring the bell to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, leave me a comment or shoot me an email. At Kevin at PerfectWord.org. That's Kevin at PerfectWord.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting aright, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom.